Well, hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Katie Moylan. Prof Moylan, thank you so much for doing this. It's wonderful to greet you, to meet you, to see you, and I'm excited. So share with us, if you would, what's preoccupying you, troubling you, worrying you, dynamizing you, interesting you today, yesterday, and perhaps tomorrow. See, I, I love this this holistic reflective line or area of questioning already. Um, we were just speaking a minute ago of so many of us academics are in the middle of our semester and doing all those teaching, which can galvanize us, but also meetings, which can galvanize us rather less. So <laughs> what's what's um, what's interesting me? What's well, without being too reductive and too universalist, which I resist. I mean, the state of the world, though, right? And um, and how to continue to navigate the world we're in, the many wars and, and conflicts, and how to speak to our students and our friends about these things, but also the sources of comfort we look for at these moments. Um, so that's kind of where my, my nexus is, if you will. And mm. so what I do then is I, as I look at radio, which is my area of research. Um, so research-wise, I look at radio, kind of community-led radio, community-led radio practices, and then the content that produces. But also, because I'm human for comfort, I listen to radio. Um, I'm based here in the UK, in Leicester. Uh, I do not regularly listen to BBC because I don't like it. I find it reductive and I don't find it speaks to me, um, except for maybe Radio 6, because I'm their target demographic. So, <laughs> I listen to radio that I feel speaks to me a bit more. So that's usually community radio in the U.S. on the West Coast, KCRW, KEXP. At the same time, um, I'm teaching my students about radio. I'm teaching my students about TV. And I'm thinking about my own research. So I have, um, I, I have a contract with MIT Press to write a book called um, Radio Reimagined which I'm excited about, but, but daunted by, because I have to write the book now. Um, <laughs> and that furthers my ongoing interest into community-led radio. So in particular, my next bit of research that I get to immerse myself in once the semester is over, hopefully, is looking more at Hawaiian radio, uh, which I was able to kind of speak to people in Oahu and Kauai about this last year, and then activist radio in New Orleans. Um, so these are my research preoccupations and I can expand, uh, in whatever direction. <laughs> I'm not sure how much of this trajectory I should continue on without, without maybe a guiding question. Ah, you're looking for a radio producer to jump in. <laughs> yes. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. I'm, I'm medium specific in all ways. That's very true. Actually. <laughs> it's true. Please tell me, please, please direct me. Give me a running order. Um, we don't have to do that. Sorry. No, but uh, Prof K, what you say is very interesting. And uh, I was a child of KCRW. Um, and actually, when I say a child, I, when I moved to LA, KCRW was my station. And yeah. I occasionally uh, guest hosted on Pacifica. Sure. Wow. Great. Yeah. And I, I'm still sometimes an interviewee, but you know how Pacifica Radio eats itself from time to time. There's all radio practitioners, but also NPR, but which is not Pacifica, but yeah. Right. Yes. Just to explain for folks, because the plurality of listeners to the podcast are in the US, but not the majority. 
KCRW, the, roughly the country divides with its call signs east and west in terms of the names of the radio stations. KCRW is based in LA, I guess, at Santa Monica Community College, right? Yeah. Which Still, is yeah. the Berkeley of community colleges in California. And it became a very important voice for live music, for breaking new bands. If you if you have to think in BBC terms, sorry about this, Prof K., then it was the institutional John Peel. Uh, John Peel was the BBC DJ of the 60s, 70s and 80s who, who brokered everything from, uh, you know, the bands after the Beatles through to the Smiths. He was the one voice of interest on Radio yeah. 1. That's a fair comparison. It, yeah, that yeah. works. And, and KCRW put on lots of live shows and was actually a national station in the sense that it was listened to by people all over the country and is part of the NPR, National Public Radio Network. Conversely, Pacifica Radio is for broken-hearted leftists like myself who prefer to hate one another than actually groove together and attack the right. And but that's, that was a real political impetus, or it has had, you know, much more so than NPR, I would say. Oh, oh totally. Oh, no, yeah. no, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and, and I love Pacifica, and it has stations in different parts of the country. It's not... It doesn't have all these massive college affiliates like NPR, but it's a very important presence on the East Coast, on the West Coast, and in parts of the centre of the country as well. Anyway, sorry to give boring context, but that's sort of my role. You know what I mean? Um, I, I appreciate context. Otherwise, I'll, I'll fly off into the Netherlands of um, abstract conceptualizations, which nobody no, wants, you know? <laughs> I have the evil surveillance map of where the podcast is downloaded. You see? Ah, so you know the listenership. Okay, not that we're pandering to any audiences, though, surely. Um, of course not. Well, no. I don't know their, you know, income, gender, race, ideology. I just know where, where they were, poor yeah. bastards, when they downloaded yeah. So that, that, <laughs> Geography. That's, that, that's it, it, geography. Thank you. Yeah. So uh, enough from me. Let's get back to what you were, you were talking about, Prof. And... One of the other things KCRW allegedly did was to invent the podcast. That's a real contested claim. And it I is. should say I'm not a podcast scholar. I have many wonderful colleagues who are. But okay, let's see. Yeah, we could explore that. So one of the things in that claim and in the history of the podcast is that it was a huge boom time for the podcast during the first two major waves of COVID-19. Gigantic. And companies like um, the, the major streaming services took on hundreds, if not thousands, of employees to handle the video aspects and the audio aspects. Guess what? The boom's over. And people have returned to radio. And this is very... Uh, I love this. Thing. Yes, this is what I say. But um, I'm always happy to have that supported. It's so interesting, though. It's like, uh, I mean, podcast to radio... For me, the podcast, the, the key difference is that the podcast is airlifted from the schedule. It is not live radio. It is a lot of scheduled radio is also not live radio. But it, because it's not scheduled radio, it's a standalone file. And for me, the beauty um, and intimacy um, and potential for connectivity of radio radio, that is to say scheduled radio, online or, or analog, is that we are listening to it in a schedule. Now, a podcast means we can airlift content. Like if I listen to Hawaii Public Radio, which I do sometimes, um, that's 11 hours behind. So I do have to access that out of the schedule. But the fact of the schedule, I think, is key because radio lends itself to habitual 
regular listening to familiarity. Um, and when you have podcast content, you know, it's, it's, it's removing that context. And I love context for radio because of its everydayness as a medium. So podcast content for something like KCRW, which as you say, lends itself, it, it very much set itself up successfully as an alternative radio station. And US listeners will recognize that term particularly alternative, meaning alternative to the mainstream norm of music. And, and like um, its counterpart, its counterpart in community radio, KEXP in Seattle, um, it really has made a name for itself in promoting new bands and supporting alternative artists. So yeah, segueing that or like parlaying that into podcast form is very valuable for anyone interested in, in music, but or alternative music and accessing really good like tiny desk concerts is one of the things they, they kind of popularized where people really well-known bands, you know, play acoustic music um, in studio. But I mean, arguably, and I don't want to segue into this because I'm not a podcast um, scholar, but arguably the podcast kind of took off before with Serial and NPR um, and people accessing kind of true crime narratives. And so there's a real creation of a new cultural form. And that, in that it's a creation of a new cultural form is interesting to me. The form itself is not something I analyze because I love radio qual radio, but I do think it's interesting we're still developing these new audio forms. I think that's something that my colleagues who do study podcasts are developing in interesting ways. Um, but KCRW is also, I'm trying to get, you said talk about my own work and that's, I'm, I'm less used to promoting my stuff, but I am passionate about radio. So let's see if I can make some connections. Um, <laughs> I mean, my interest in radio came about because I used to work in pirate radio. I used to in Dublin and Ireland, and that uh, it was fun, but also um, it made me realize how small scale radio could connect to listeners because I would hang out in Dublin and people would recognize probably my accent really and say, oh, I've heard you like playing like trip hop songs that were 12 minutes long. Um, I know that voice. <laughs> so yeah. and then for my PhD, I realized... I was living in Dublin and Dublin has historically, or Ireland has been a particularly homogenous country in the context of Europe, as you probably know, unlike the UK and unlike wealthier countries, because Ireland didn't have money, it also didn't have inward migration because there were no jobs. And then with the Celtic Tiger in the 2000s, we did have inward migration there for the first time, really, in a substantial way. But radio and representation wasn't keeping up. So its public service broadcaster, RTE, Radio Television, Aaron, you know, was kind of producing these tokenistic diversity, I'm making quote signs, uh, programs, but really they were run really by white practitioners. So you didn't have programs from the community, from new communities, by the community members and for those audiences. But community radio in Dublin was doing that on a shoestring. And really that's been the case ever since so i wrote my phd on this comparing community radio in dublin and in ireland to um, rte programming but then i started looking around and here in the uk we are well served by community radio um it was legalized here in 2004 and i think at this point there's like over 300 stations which is amazing to me um but i keep finding that community radio is really not only is it providing localized programming which speaks to 
again, back to geography and back to place-based practices and people wanting to hear, you know, content, people speaking, not just content, but people speaking with vernacular, not necessarily even accents, but vernacular in terms of reference that resonate with them because they live down the block or down the road. So local programming in all senses of that, but also, and this became evident during COVID very much, um, Joe Coleman's written about this and I've written about this in US contexts, something just beeped. Um, and that's that in crisis times, community radio found itself better equipped to produce uh, information provision that was locally specific in terms of um, in terms of at the beginning of the lockdowns in 2020, um, senior shopping hours, you know, when when was it safe to go to shops? You know, certain certain groups, vulnerable groups were more protected, where there were food drops, um, where there were um, testing centers, information on the numbers coming in, which was quite horrifying. Um, and mainstream radio wasn't was lagging behind, but like mainstream radio was also lagging behind in terms of providing kind of comfort to people who were at home and listening to the radio and listening to podcasts, as you mentioned, a lot more. So I already had this interest and then come to find out the pandemic halted my then current research into indigenous radio. Um, I was then in the US on an EU fellowship. All my station visits got canceled, but I was still in contact with and had relationships with these radio practitioners. So we were just talking about what they were doing. Um, Feel free to jump in anytime, Toby, because this is, I could go on all day, but I also, you know, two voices are more fun than one, right? So. <laughs> but remember, the producer is supposed to be silent. <laughs> That's true, actually. The, the producer yeah. is just the voice in your ear saying, okay. come on, Katie, come on. <laughs> chop, chop, let's see. Um, <laughs> fair enough. Okay, see, this, this is this is what radio, this is not not radio, everybody. Um, what determines radio? Does it have to have a station connected to it? Um, because it is audio only from listeners' point of view. I just, I have an ongoing interest which was kind of you know emphasized and made more acute at the start of those lockdowns in 2020 in March April May 2020 about community radio's capacity for self-representation for for calming for making their listeners their local listeners their listeners of a community of interest as with as with things like activist radio feel you know to feel heard to feel seen to feel connected so the stations I was in contact with, KUYI, uh, the Hopi station, this is in what's called Arizona, North Northeast Arizona, uh, KWLP, which is a Wallapai station at the other corner of Arizona. You know, I was listening to their programming where they were talking, everybody was programming, was speaking from their homes because they're all self-isolating responsibly. Um, and just kind of talking their listeners through music. They were doing kind of impromptu concerts from their own bedrooms to make everybody feel better and to play music that would resonate with people. Um, WHIV in New Orleans, a city I think you know well, um, they do really activist radio. And at the time of those lockdowns, they were also broadcasting content, everybody broadcasting from home, you know, kind of making people feel connected. And radio has always done that, but its capacity to do that and the need for us as listeners for that kind of connection just really became really acute. And so I was just kind of listening and taking notes and listening to horrible things like, like the numbers rising in different parts of the country in these different stations. 
but also I felt like we were all experiencing this in real time. So it was a really crucial moment. And I was able to meet with KUII, that's the Hopi station, right before they shut everything down um, because we had a scheduled meeting and this was when the US was kind of teetering. They didn't know whether or not to do lockdowns or not because Trump of course was not running anything. So, so I was there. And we we're supposed to have a meeting, you know, we were going to have a roundtable discussion, which is how it's, I, I don't do focus groups. It's just how we kind of, how I get their perspectives on the kind of work they do. And it was my second time meeting them. So I was looking forward to it. And uh, the then manager said, look, we're having a crisis meeting instead because of this. Um, he goes, you're very welcome to sit in. And I felt very honored. I still feel very honored um, to be included in that. And, you know, this was March 16th and on the on the TV, Trump was basically still kind of denying that COVID existed. Fossey was contradicting him. That was in the place I was staying. And then we got in the car and I got to Hopi. And already I walked through the door and everyone's doing elbow bumps and everyone's being careful to distance before, you know, they saw it coming, um, but they were also like a lot of indigenous stations. They were, they knew how to, how to broadcast in crisis, how to handle crisis with um, with compassion, with care. We went around the table. I've written about this. This isn't private in that I have written about this in an article uh, published in ACME, um, which is a cultural geographies journal. Um, and the article is um, Our Heart and Our Voices, which is one of the practitioner's lines. And we went around the table and the manager said, look, how's everybody feeling? And I just, it just was such an extraordinary, and, and then you're in it and you're hearing people talk about this. And you're like, well, this of course is how we should have meetings. This is how we should talk about cultural production. This is if we're all working together in radio or in any form of cultural production, it's collective. Why would we not start here? You know, instead of kind of weird top-down directives. I mean, to provide a, a form of contrast, um, when we were on our way, when we came back, I was that time during my fellowship based living in Texas in Arlington, which is between da um, Dallas and Fort Worth. And Dallas mainstream radio is so sports-tastic. So there's a lot of money. It's very well resourced, very kind of like fraught boy radio. And, you know, and they had no sports. So we drove back. We're listening to the car radio two weeks after I was in Hopi. And there's all these clueless commenter, uh, commentators who have amazing salaries broadcasting from home for the first time at a complete loss they had no content they were bombastic they were complaining about their family members surrounding them it was like it was just such a, a clear illustration of what happens when there is a crisis moment and you have stations which are used to functioning with less resources um stations which are used to mitigating and negotiating and broadcasting and mediating crises in different ways they're like okay here's another one all right here we go and just I kept finding that as I kept listening and talking to practitioners in March April May June you know indigenous radio practitioners they were on content they were managing content that was connecting with their communities but was also giving information in compassionate ways and that just wasn't happening in mainstream radio or certainly not enough and this was part of your project to map indigenous radio stations. I mean, that that was a project within the fellowship. Yeah. Um, so it was a two year 
uh, EU Marie Curie um, to uh, to basically research indigenous Native American, American Indian. All these terms are in use by uh, practitioners, tribal practitioners in the U.S. I say indigenous half the time. Um, you know, first people lead with their tribal name, Hopi or Wallapai. People don't actually use indigenous that much, so I try to cycle between them as well. So, um, in answer to your question, I didn't set out to map first and foremost stations, but I quickly realized at the start of the fellowship that I had to because um, there are great organizations like Native Public Media um, who do provide a kind of a house of like nationally syndicated indigenous Native American or Native American content, but there wasn't an existing map of stations. And this happens with the community radio sector time and again, it's why with this less listening or listener research as well, because they don't have the resources, you know, you have to like hire someone to, to create a map. So because I had to map, because I was doing it anyway, I was like, what stations, what, because you can, you know, the FCC website, I don't know if you've ever been on the FCC website. It's, 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 it's a dry, long, complicated, unclear, um, place. <laughs> just, just to place. cut in, that's a Federal Communications Commission, which Indeed. is the so-called regulator of the bourgeois and not so bourgeois broadcast media in the United States. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 a legislative body, I think, as well, or it's a policy. It it houses, um, it, it, it issues licenses um, yes. and houses criteria for that. So it we do need, I needed to pay attention to it, but it was, it was less than helpful and less than clear. So yeah, so I I just looked around online um, for what stations were using. I, I could tell you my keywords. I don't talk that way. I just kind of, I look for a station. I look for another station. Um, I don't know, like I knew about KUII. And so they connected me to, um, to the Wallapai station. And then you just kind of hear stuff and then you can Google stuff and you cross-reference. I don't know. But yes, I put together a map um, and I'm, I'm happy about it because it was, it's, I'm happy about it for several reasons. The more articles I write, and, and I feel like they have to mean something, they have to resonate with more than five people who are ever going to read them. I'm also convinced that really our scholarship should be open access because, you know, if our ideas are important, if we really think that we are making important political, social, cultural connections with our research, connecting for me, for instance, pieces of media with its wider social implications, that should be accessible. It's easy to say that if you're a little established because it's easier for someone like me to publish open access, not least because in fairness to my institution, they pay or they maintain relationships with publishers. So open access is a great principle, but it's not always easy to enact. However, um, I'm kind of committed to it as much as I can be, um, in the sense that I can like negotiate that. So my contract with MIT Press for the book is also open access. Cause I just think if you're talking to community practitioners about their work, they should be able to see that for free um, published. So the map is also part of this way of thinking though, because it's like, what even is research sometimes, you know, how, let's look at what that complicated sentence explaining a complex phenomena is actually doing. What does it contribute? I'm looking at, I mean, I do think we need complex language to talk about theory and to talk about concepts. I say this because I've been saying it to my students for the last three weeks, but also there's other ways to communicate ideas and to think about what's called research outputs. And so the map, basically, this is my, this is my five sentence 
six sentence, seven sentence answer about the mapping question. I thought it was important. I was doing it anyway for to find out what stations were out there. And I also wanted to make those stations as accessible as possible. So the map um, links to stations and links to a live feed, which I love because I love live radio. Radio Garden, um, radio.garden is an app that allows this as well. Um, so yeah, it was important to me to do that. And then I developed the map talking with the practitioners from different stations, from KUII, from KWLP, from KCNP, which is in Oklahoma, a Chickasaw station, KSUT um, in Colorado, um, uh, which is Ute and Southern Ute and Mountain Ute um, tribes, and the Powell station KPRI um, in Southern California. And because again, I shouldn't make this map in a vacuum if it's not gonna be of use. So, I mean, it was a busy time and it was a crisis time. So it's useful value, I'm not sure. I hope it's useful to practitioners, but it was, I thought something that needed to be done that was helpful. No, I think so that, yes, I created I think a map. That's great. Now, Prof, you're in Leicester, which yeah. is not only the place of my birth, but slightly more significantly, literally in the middle of England. Uh, yes, indeed. Yes. Not the middle of Britain, but the middle of England. Mm -hmm. And when I was growing up, it was an incredible dump. But okay. it got lucky with the variety of South Asians who either were expelled or felt they'd better leave East Africa. Just nice. as the industry, the manufacturing of Leicester, which was things like women's undergarments and bicycles and shoes, was collapsing. And there was all this warehouse space that these dudes that were smart, small business people moved into. And now it's just about the most multicultural city in, in Europe. Now, you've already told us that you're not a fan of the BBC. What's your take on poor old Radio Leicester? And just for some context, so from the 60s, the BBC constructed local broadcast stations around the country, which are now being destroyed by the BBC um, because of a bunch of Tories who want to make sure that networked commercial radio can make more money by bringing in more listeners. But in any event, it does have this thing called Radio Leicester, which seems still to be all white all the time, as far as I can tell. So have you got a take on it as a local station that's part of your uh, you know, I'm the only media studies academic in the UK who's prepared to speak out against the BBC campaign. Up, oh, I mean, there's got to be more than me. I just <laughs> um, okay. So BBC Radio Leicester is an interesting case because it's. I think it is, and, and colleagues of mine again here in radio studies in the UK have absolutely written about this, and so you should turn to them. But um, I believe it was the first of the local BBC stations to be established. Um, and I think for a while it did do it did fulfill its remit, which include which is to provide radio by and for the people of Leicester in their diversity. And I do think actually it's Gloria Kamkar who's written about this, um, and she has ever she, she's she's written about programming that is South Asian on Radio Leicester. Um, but these days. I mean, like a lot of local BBC stations, um, it only has local content some of the time. The last time I checked, which was a while ago, maybe over a year ago, um, its local content was only at the weekends. And as you say, yes, it was white broadcasters. Um, the rest of the content is syndicated cross BBC content. And I guess my problem with a lot of BBC radio um, 
television is a different story, is that, you know, we actually know that this applies to all of it. The BBC has a remit. Um, our license fee goes to it, but even if it didn't, it's a public service broadcaster. Its job is to enable meaningful, significant representation of the diversity of the UK, and it doesn't do that, not fully. Instead, in its radio, which I'll just revert to now, you know, too often it's a kind of like very white middle class um, structure feeling. So I like to think of radio through Raymond Williams's idea of the structure of feeling uh, in that it's a concept that's been variously interpreted. So this is my version of it. Um, a structure of feeling can be created and reproduced through ongoing practices, which kind of confirm a set of core principles, if, if you will, or, or core ideas. And then I use David Harvey's idea of kind of ongoing community-led practices alongside that. So I feel like radio, because it is, it lends itself to continual, regular, um, habitual listening, we reinforce our sense of subjectivity in part through the radio we listen to. So if we listen to BBC, um, we find ourselves, if we listen to BBC 2, BBC 4, uh, Radio 4, as they say, and even BBC 6, 6 Music, I feel like it reinforces a primarily white middle-class subjectivity. Um, and that's not because of the content. It's not the content is primarily white. It's just the people speaking, but also the people calling in. Something like the Ver Jeremy Vines show, which is like a current affairs live-ish call-in show about current events, which takes place at noon every day. You know, people call in with their take on the issue of the day. But again, a lot of those people are not people of color by my listening. And that's and so that's remiss. That's not representative radio. Um, what is happening in Leicester, um, which is quite, yes, it's multi-layered in its diversity. Certainly it has a very established South Asian set of communities. Um, it's got uh, more recent uh, groups having kind of migrated here, Somalians, um, also a very substantial established um, African and Caribbean um, set of communities. You know, and, and then you have like two universities, including Leicester. So, and our university has a really diverse student cohort, which is a, a joy to teach. Um, so I work with the radio station here, Eva FM, one of these 300 um, community stations in the UK. And Eva FM um, was set up to amplify East Asian, uh, sorry, South Asian voices, um, but also East African voices from, as you say, um, kind of migrants from back then from, from um, Africa, but they were South Asian. Their families were just migrating to Leicester, to the UK from Africa. And it's multilingual programming. Um, so it's scheduled. I wish I had it in front of me, but I, I mean, I would call because I work with them because <laughs> they co-teach a module um, on community radio with me here at Leicester. But their schedule includes programming that's Gujarati because that's a large um, that's, that's a large South Asian community here in Leicester, but also Punjabi also um, Somalian, also Shona, which is a Southern African language, but also Polish, also historically Mandarin, I think Spanish as well. Um, so truly and persistently multilingual programming. So they would be an alternative in terms of enabling community-led representation um, to something like radio, BBC Radio Leicester, um, because they are actually fully local and they are regularly listened to. And during COVID, uh, VJ Umro, who's the station manager, and I've talked about this a lot, 
you know, they provided information. They provided local information about vaccination centers, about testing. There was a lot of, um, you know, and my colleagues and I wrote an article about this. There's, there has there was skepticism about vaccines um, from some communities, not just in Leicester, and that's because the messaging some communities got from the mainstream medical establishment here, you know, they weren't treated well, they weren't, they weren't listened to. And so they were skeptical of the of vaccination measures, because it's another medicalization of something that was not fully explained, and that they're not trusted to, they're not given information in a culturally specific way. So EVFM as a radio station, took the lead on messaging around vaccines, which goes to a core tenant, uh, tenant of what I think community radio does, is, and that's it takes on a social care role, which really the state should do. You know, it, it gives health specific information. It informs people who don't want to go into spaces where they're just going to be talked down to or not spoken to in, in their home language. And in that sense, in, in taking on a social care responsibility, they should be funded as such. They should be, you know, treated as such and and resourced because almost all community stations I've ever come across, KCOW is very much an exception um, because they are an NPR affiliate as well. But most community stations, they have one paid position, a manager, sometimes a couple of technicians or production people who are like on pro rata salaries. But everyone who presents a, a program is usually volunteer. So right. that's what I think about radio provision in in Leicester. Um, oh, great. Thank you. Thank you mm. very much. That's interesting. I must admit, I didn't know about Eva FM, mm. um, but I've just pulled down or pulled up whatever the right cliche is, the website, so I can mm. investigate that later thank, uh, mm. under your direction. So, um, Prof K, I want to take you back, back, back to your early days listening to radio. Yeah. As a child, as Ooh. a student, as an adult, what was your trajectory with radio? I love that question. I don't know if anyone's ever asked me that question, even though it's a very germane question. God, um, okay. As a kid, I didn't listen to much radio. No, that's a lie. I did. I listened to mainstream radio, to pop radio, what they call in the U.S. the top 40. Um, and I Casey did- Casey Kasem? Yeah, a little bit before my time, but that is the guy, yes, who apparently was a bit of a dodgy character, actually, as it turns out. But um, He was the Arab-American voice on yes. Top 40 radio in the United States. But, keep your feet on the ground and keep reaching for the stars. Yes, but I think he was doing a few other things with his hands as well, which is not to make light of the fact that uh, nasty things about his occupational and sexual politics emerged yeah. I think after his death, but yeah. he was an important voice because yeah. he did also speak about Arab American issues. In oh, I did not know that. Okay. Yeah, okay. in addition to his top 40 work. Anyway, putting him That's to one side. So you were listening to what station for pop? Oh, okay. So I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Um, so, oh, and you know what? I probably know that. Yes, yes, I do. I was listening to WKTI. How is this in my head? Um, <laughs> WKTI, which, okay, so uh, U.S. listeners will know this. U.S. music radio is much more format-driven or much more specifically format-driven than BBC, than, than than European radio, in fair, and even the BBC. So the BBC 
it has dedicated music channels, but you'll still probably hear a slightly bigger variety of music, even on its most mainstream music provision, something like BBC Radio 2, than you will hear on US mainstream stations because they're all divided up to by genre. So there's the rock station, there's country station, there's classics, there's and so KTI, I think, was as mainstream is the top 40, as we used to call mm-hmm. it as a category. Mm-hmm. So I listened to that and I did what everybody else did, which is um well, no, well, the, the whole tape recording thing, I'm going to leave it there because who even knows? <laughs> um, because, of course, you know, uh, home taping, I don't think was ever legal, but it is a way that we all accessed music back in the day. Right. So before, say, even Napster and 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 development since. So I listened to that. And then there was an, uh, an alternative station in Milwaukee called WMSE, which is a college station. Um, but I think it was like a technical college. So that was our, that was my first exposure to an indie station or an alternative station, as we called it. They call it alternative in the US and they call it indie music over here. Or I think we did our generation. I think younger people call it something completely different or they're more genre specific. So I grew up listening to that. I, my first radio, uh, first time I was on radio was at a college station in, in Waukesha outside of Milwaukee. And I had a show with a friend of mine and we wanted to be alternative. So we would play, I mean, not really alternative. We'd play, I don't know, Tears for Fears or something, which is, which by the way, stand up, but not risky, like super, super risky. Huh? You're risky, oh. you're on the edge. That was brave, okay. that was courageous. Oh, I know. Fears. Oh, now I forgot oh. about all this. I forgot about the deep, deep, deep <laughs> snobbish nerdery of um, alternative radio curation and I hate the word curation can I just say let's just like do a running order and run our sh- and run our music anyway we did used to do things like play the Beastie Boys or Madonna and blow them up in the middle we play like an explosion <laughs> so we were trying in our very small way to be subversive and then I moved to um then the next time I was on radio I was in Glasgow University there and they had a legit license for a short-term radio uh station called I think Sweet FM and actually, you reminded me, I did get called out for not being alternative and edgy enough. And by then I was buying my own music and I was going to clubs and going out to, because um, Glasgow clubs in the 90s were amazing, fantastic. So I would just like be that nerd who like stop dancing and going up and saying, what is this song? So people like <laughs> Orbital, for instance, do you know what I mean? So I would play this. And again, not super, super edgy, but getting there. Um, and then I moved to Dublin and I did pirate radio there. Um because I was there, I think I was listening over a weekend and I heard a really non-pirate sounding station called Jazz FM, which was trying to be legit, which is stupid. You should just lean into the piracy. But I listened to that and got a gig on there. And then from there, I went to different pirate stations. But yeah, it was fun. It was um, it was just, I, I'll be honest, Toby, I never said I want to be on radio. I just was. I just, I liked the idea of it, you know. I love that story. Can I tell you my Milwaukee College radio story? Oh, yes, please. Yes. So when I was teaching grad school in New York, a doctoral seminar, there were two doctoral students in the room who didn't know one another. One of them spoke for the when it was the first time to introduce yourself and then say a bit about how humble yet incredibly potentially important you are and whatnot. Uh, grad school, they, yeah. So this, this dude spoke and this uh, another woman across the across the room looked thunderstruck Mm -hmm. anyway 
she said afterwards, were you on college radio in Minneapolis, actually? And was your name then, Blah, was a pseudonym? He said, yes, she, and this woman was queer. She said, I fell in love with your voice. I listened to you night after night. It's incredible to meet you now. It's a very sweet story about that the nature of the voice and the sorts of fantasies that it can construct for people. Imagining what the person looks like, not so difficult now because sadly so much radio comes with live footage of people just talking into a fat microphone. I've never really seen the point of that. But it's it's interesting to me the way in which the voice can be so special. And of course, that's there's that perennial insult, a good face for radio. I mean, I, I I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna breathe over some of the stuff around projecting the face and the face of radio at all. And that's just because I've got my nerd scholar hat on and I'm more obsessed with accents um, and with the values attached to accents. But you're not wrong either, because like at least one boyfriend of mine in Dublin um, did hear my voice first. So that, that was quite sweet, actually. Yeah, and I smoked- thank you. OK, <laughs> right. And, and it does happen. And I smoked cigarettes then. So it was probably even a certain register. Um, ah, you were doing the Lauren Bacall thing. Not even on purpose, though. But yeah. Um, so, you know, good times. And but but maybe that's where and I wasn't consciously doing this, um, not even the voice. It's just the great thing about radio is before everyone started putting it on Facebook when Facebook live serves a function in terms of amplifying community radio. I want to say that it is important, but it has that visual element to my mind was never necessary and is not necessary. Um, because the live voice, and I write about this and other radio scholars, right? The interesting radio scholars write about this, (laughs) the way that voice conveys intimacy and feels, makes us feel connected. And sometimes it's an aesthetic thing. And sometimes it's the timbre of the voice and you just like the voice. It's just a lovely voice often. And interestingly, I think it's when people hear accents like their own um, and uh, Hamid Nafisi has come up with this idea. came up with this idea of accented cultural production, which I've, um, which I kind of deployed to talk about accented production of radio. And I don't mean accent by the connotations that you so often have in the UK in terms of it's, it's a kind of indicator of class, which is what it's mined for. Um, you know, uh, instead I'm kind of thinking, it's not, not that class can't be found in certain people's voices and in their reference points and in their accents, because that, that is also the case. But what interests me more is ways in which voice does connect and ways in which regional accents make people from the same region feel connected. That's so important. Um, and that to me is one of the, such a value of radio, you know? Um, and then when you get into multilingual programming, all the more so, there's a station, um, I forget the call sign, but it was called itself the first Haitian station in the nation um, in Miami. <laughs> and um, I've written about a show that's now hosted by different people. And the three young hosts would move between Haitian and um, so uh, Haitian and English. So they, oh, Creole, Haitian, Creole, Creole and English. So they called it Kringlish. So that kind of movement of like um, terminology also accents very much a kind of Haitian accent, especially one of them. Anyway, I think all of that resonates. And of course, what what saddens me is I've got like the most or one of the more normative accents in the world, which is just annoying um, because I just sound like everybody on mainstream American TV still. 
So um, there's but more. But one thing, could I, could I throw something at you? I've got two more questions to ask, mm -hmm. and then I'd like to hand over to you to subtract from or add to what we've already discussed. So my, my first question is this. It's to say that you speak what is what linguists used to call Ohio English, but Ohio English itself is actually changing because the twang is moving north into Ohio, but is known in, in the media as NBC English. And okay, this is yeah. the, the equivalent. Of, it's a sort of non-regional, white, upper-middle-class voice. And so I speak what linguists call received pronunciation uh, in Britain, and it's the same thing. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. The value of that in many cases is for people for whom English is not a first language. For people for whom English is not a first language, who have just arrived in northern Scotland or in Newcastle, and they get a wonderfully local voice, they won't have a fucking clue what's been said to them. When the announcement comes out about get off the train, get off the bus now, there's an yeah. emergency, they won't understand it at all. And that's why it's useful, for example, here in Spain, that you get the equivalent of that sort of voice giving instructions on mass transit. It's why it's useful when you get the equivalent of that sort of voice giving instructions in airports. In switching places for people who are dealing with a second or third or fourth language or who are quite proficient in that language but have been taught it with a yeah. background that is more NBC English or received pronunciation or a mixture of any of those things, this is actually quite useful, right? So I, I wonder what uh, I'm asking your reaction to that sort of, uh, you know, ruling class provocation on my part. I That's a really interesting question because actually there's a lot of different parts to that that I could speak to um, and I'm going to try. Also, I didn't know we could swear. So fuck yes, that's great. I did not know that was part of this. Um, Okay, I take your point in being intelligible and not least because I, I teach quite a transcultural um, cohort every year. And so they ask for subtitles on TV or film, for example. Um, so and if you're new to a place, intelligibility is so important. And I've had the absolute privilege um, of having freedom of movement. And that is in no that is due to my subjectivity and to being born with access to a US passport and an Irish passport. I mean, I'm crazy privileged in that way. And I believe in freedom of movement for everyone. And I believe everyone should have that access. And part of that access is when you go somewhere new that you don't have the additional fear and in increased sense of precarity that is caused if you don't understand what's going on. Oh, by the way, you're so, speaking to someone who's just had his visa renewal rejected for the fifth time by the Spanish government. So I am without paper. Uh, so I'm interrupting in order to say thank no. you, thank you, thank you for saying what you just said. Oh, no, that's absolute fucking bullshit. No, no, everyone has the right to move around. Everyone, everyone. And if people say things like it's for economic reasons, yes, yes, it is. I, I have strong feelings on this. I'm glad that you've given me the chance to articulate that. And I hope that your visa um, does get approved very soon because that kind of precarity is very stressful um, and nobody should have to live with that. And part, therefore, of moving around, as you'll know, then, is exactly as you say. And it's and maybe it takes the fact, the experience of having moved around to see that and to know that, yes, you need everything to be as clearly explained to you as possible. And I agree with that. Alongside that, um, one of the things I do like, um, because I have very conflicting feelings about England, shall I say? No, I was, I'll say England more than the UK. 
I love Scotland. Um, um, is that there is such a wealth of accents here, though. I mean, there are across the UK, all of it. Um, and they're beautiful to me. The Newcastle accent is beautiful to me. The Scottish accent, it took me a year to talk to Glasgow taxi drivers. But then I got there, you know. It, so I'm, 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 I'm moving between, though, the need for intelligibility and the greater literal comfort and ease that that confers and the importance of that. Alongside that, ideally... And this would require everyone to do more work, though, listening work, intelligibility work, but also work in bringing more accents for us to hear. Ideally, we could understand more accents. And so, for example, one way, and I know I'm thinking incredibly idealistically here, but I do think it's important to tease these things out. So the BBC years ago only had, as you say, RP. Um, it really only had a accent and accents. Um, across both its TV and its radio. Um, although you did have early people, oh, there's some great DJs on radio who have had Northern accents and I'm lapsing on all their names, but they're famous and they've been there for decades. However, um, then BBC TV then started bringing in more regional accents for its continuity announcers, right? For its kind of announcement of upcoming programs. And it brought in Scottish accents, much more, many more Welsh accents, Northern accents, Irish accents, which Ireland is a different country. I'm happy to hear the accents, but it's an interesting inclusion because there are other accents that aren't to say established and, and white, shall we say. So one difficult, messy way to address the default Ohio NBC uh, uh, accent on my part in the RP1 and their continuing prevalence and their, their continuing normativity because they, if you have a normative accent, that that reinforces a hierarchy of accents. And that is what I'm countering. And that's what I'd like to keep countering. And that's what I try to, to get at in my own research into accents, into locally produced content and voices. You know, if we had a greater panoply of voices available to us when we're listening to all kinds of media, maybe then we would train our ears to listen for more accents. But that is more work too. I don't say it's a solution, but I do think the normative accents could stand to be challenged. And I say that as a possessor of one of them. So, I mean, I'm, it's I'm not easy. It's not easy answer. One BBC station that I quite like, which is the World Service, which yes. I listen to a fair bit, where there is a big array of accents, but okay. everybody is careful to pronounce every syllable. Yeah. And to yeah. use relative pronouns and to do things that if you're listening to Radio Bloke, which is officially called Radio 5 Live, but is now based in Salford because, of course, the BBC is interested in devolution when it comes to certain parts of the country and not others. So the North and Wales are always privileged. Um, you don't get. And there are, there's a much greater variety of BBC accents on the World Service than there is on any station I've ever heard, but it's focused on clarity of diction in ways that many sociolinguists understandably deride as being class-based. But again, I'm not interested in the Anglo world. I'm interested in people for whom the Anglo world is mandatory. Yeah. They have to be able to understand it, but is not actually easy to navigate and where concessions need to be made. And it's not just English. Uh, for example, if you come from a 
a country and you're a diplomat from Western Europe or from Canada or the US, and you're going to be a diplomat in Latin America, in Hispanic America, then obviously you learn some Spanish before you leave home, but you go to language school in Guatemala, Colombia, or Mexico, and you go to learn middle-class, barely accented, fully spelt out, as it were, word use, because that's going to be the language, that's the easiest way for you to grasp a new language, a different language. And they happen to be the countries where people, even often across class and indigeneity, enunciate more words if they're urban or more of words than is the case with some other parts of the region. So I do think it's it's a bit, for me, more complicated than the, the class-based obsession that the English have. That's all I guess I'm saying, that I keep thinking about people for whom this is a struggle in the first instance to understand. And your case is interesting because most of my native English-speaking friends from the US cannot watch football from Scotland because... Yeah. They can't even distinguish one word from another, let alone <laughs> the, the totality of what is being said. I don't think we need to do is spend some time there. Do you know what I mean? It's like my partner lived in Newcastle for a while. And so like he said, it took him a while to get it. But then once once you understand it, you understand it, you know. Um, or you can date people from the region beforehand, which is also something um, I did. Yeah, but, but then the relationship falls apart as soon as you can really understand one another. So these are difficult topics, so I don't know if I yeah. wanted to know. <laughs> Naomi Campbell married her Spaniard after three days. Mm -hmm. um, he didn't have any English. She didn't have any Spanish. As soon as they were able to understand one another fairly well, the whole thing went kaput. There's some scientific knowledge for you. There so it's an empirical case study. Yes. Yeah. Last question before I mm -hmm. throw things to you to, to wrap up, as it were. And it's uh, to imagine a situation in which I'm I'm knocking on your door uh, at school and saying, hi, I'm wanting to do a doctorate on radio, but I don't know the field really well because it wasn't something I was given in undergrad, but I'm an avid listener or I've worked in community or pirate radio or for KISS FM, whatever it might be, or NPR. What are you going to say to me about how I should study and what my future might look like? Well, the future I can't speak to, especially because our students, so many people are worried about the future and the right to be. So I'm not going to, I'm going to dodge that one, but I'm going to go back to Stuart Hall um, and his, his, I'm paraphrasing his thing like, okay, you want to do a PhD? What in society bothers you? You know, what is the problem that you see um, that you want to find out more about and together you and I will help explore that. Because radio, like the rest of media, radio is never just about radio, you know? Um, so if they're interested in community radio, I would say, okay, I love that you're coming from radio or you're coming from an interest in radio. So I would ask them, I'm going to give you like a 16 sentence answer here, Toby. Um, you know, I'm going to say, what about radio? Like, what radio do you listen to? Why do you think it's effective? Um, what's the problem with radio? What's the problem in society that has nothing to do with radio that maybe radio can be used as a way to kind of explore and understand that? So yeah, I'd start with the societal problem and then look at what radio enables, makes possible, amplifies in relation to that. And then I would always draw on, I guess, if we have 
I won't say they're a canon, but if we have some working concepts in radio scholarship, again, this idea of intimacy, liveness, connection, but also kind of the ways in which radio production is less expensive, is easier, um, and what that means in terms of overused ideas like authenticity, but say a less less set less layers of mediation in the voice um, where you are actually speaking to the microphone there's less crap between you and whoever you're speaking to um so i would delve into radio radio radio's medium specificity and what about that was interesting to them so it would be a long and uh and digressive conversation um but if that interested them then we'd take it from there so not an easy conversation but hopefully interesting that was very concise, not 16 sentences at all. And I think wonderful, wonderful, wonderful advice. So Prof Morland, I'd like to hand it over to you now to describe, discuss, talk about anything we haven't mentioned or anything that you'd like to revisit. Oh gosh, um, I don't know. Um, like I said at the start, I kind of have current things circling around so there's my radio research always that continues to interest me. When I knew we were speaking, I did think about, I don't know if there's radio, if there's research of mine that I think is particularly meaningful. And I do go back to what I was writing about and thinking about during those early months um, of lockdowns in 2020. Because at that time, I feel like there was a really important moment in terms of crisis programming, like I talked about, but in ways in which solidarity was emerging in the US where I was anyway, in terms of the response to the George Floyd murder, and then the um, the protests that emerged and kept going in the US. I was in the Dallas Fort Worth area, as I said, and there were four of those a week, you know what I mean? And there are protests around the country, and that was so galvanizing. So there was this cross section where I'm listening to community-led radio, to tribal radio, to Dallas radio, to a wonderful program called Beyond Bows and Arrows, produced um, by um, a long-running, 25 years old, uh, running on Dallas Community Radio. And they're exploring both elements of the pandemic and everyday life and what it's like to go to Walmart and people aren't masking and where's all the toilet paper, but also when the protests emerge, there's all these expressions of solidarity across indigenous community, um, at the Black Lives Matter protests, then I'm listening to WHIV in New Orleans, where Dr. Marco Landeri, who is one of the station founders, was he's a medical doctor, he's an infectious disease doctor, and he was talking about ways to protest safely and how to wear your mask, and you're still safe if you wear your mask, even though it's a large group of people. You know, so survival strategies, um, community building strategies, talk of materiality, which I was. I feel these are cultural studies concerns always too, right? Because it was our everyday in this extraordinary moment. And so I'm looking back at that. I kind of want to consider it in a histiographic, histiographical way um, and maybe talk about archiving some of those programmings, some of those programs, programs. So that, that preoccupies me still because I feel like we've receded from a moment um, of solidarity at a time when we really still need it. There are so many protests and conversations um, that are pro-Palestinian. I'm glad to see that, but we need more because there's a lot of divisiveness. So we need to keep mining that solidarity. And then alongside that, I'm teaching students and I'm teaching them about TV and they're all watching different TV and their TV lands with them differently and they get emotional sustenance from it. So we talk about that. 
And then the other students are producing their own radio programs. And so they're talking about stuff that's interesting to them and development of music genres. So the usual constellation, but um, yeah, it's nice to be able to reflect on this kind of standing from the outside when you're not knee deep in, in the actual teaching work. And we haven't talked about meetings once, which is great, so. Well, Prof Moylan, thank you so, so much for taking the time to speak with me and with us. It's been terrific. I, I really admire your work and I learned a lot more in the last hour than I have in most hours of my life. So it was wonderful to have you along. Thank you so much for, for giving the space um, and you know allowing us to have this conversation and for the interest. Cheers.